Nearly everybody's confused by their first interaction with a pinball machine. Some people think the game's broken because they don't know you have to press the start button. Or they get it going, slap the ball around a bit, maybe hit a few random targets before draining, and the whole thing's over seconds after it began. And why would anybody want to spend money on that? Pinball isn't even a game you can win, not really. You can learn to use the flippers to gain control of the ball, aim shots at flashing lights for big points, complete series of tasks for jackpots, and make it a competition to see who scores the highest before they lose. If you get a good enough score, the machine may even reward you with a free credit to play again. But after sending the ball up ramps, through spinners, and down whatever winding trails the designers put on the table, you're going to lose the free game too. No matter how good you get, pinball ends with the ball going down the drain. This is not a game you win. It's a game you try to play for as long as you can until you lose. In other words, if you're the kind of person who knows you can do better if only you had another chance, pinball is inherently addictive. Can you tell us how many kids there are in that school over there? 3,500. Do you get much of that trade? Quite a bit. How about building it up? We'll install a nickel game for you. So they can go hungry handing you their lunch money. Get out of here. Well, if that's the way you feel, we'll only install three, and you'll like it. Which may have been the only criticism American politicians needed in order to outlaw the game in many states for about 30 years. Many country musicians were famously addicted to pinball during this time. Waylon Jennings used to drive all night after a show to get back to his favorite machines in Nashville. Tom Paul Glazer spent so much money on pinball, the second time he went back to a spot with a machine he liked, the owner had installed six more. The politicians who banned pinball had additional concerns, though, like how these addictive machines were part of illegal gambling operations across the United States. Of course, this was true. Waylon and Tom Paul weren't addicted to gaming. They were addicted to gambling. But why would anybody gamble on a game you can't win? And how would that even work? Well, the flipper setup on a modern pinball machine is the only thing that allows players to temporarily control the ball in order to aim their shots. And no game had those kind of flippers until the second half of the 20th century. Before then, even if there was a flipper somewhere on a table, you'd be lucky to use it more than once to affect the ball's path of travel. On most games, a player's only hope of directing the ball was by using their knee, hip, or hands to nudge and bump the whole damn table. Like someone trying to get a snack machine to release their dangling bag of chips or some kind of weird dance. Well, you get a couple of nickels and you put one in. You lever up the ball and then you grab the pin. You pull it back a little and you let her roll. The rhythm of your body keeps it under control. You do the pinball boogie. Woo, the pinball boogie. Yes, the pinball boogie. You rattle it and shake it till it gets in the hole. Hit the machine too hard, though, and the game would instantly end, thanks to the tilt mechanism designed to keep players from lifting the table off the ground to cheat the ball around. Unlike the game we have today, pre-flipper pinball was nearly entirely dependent on chance, thus useful for gambling purposes. 
This is the game Hank Lachlan was singing about in 1950 on the song Pinball Millionaire. When you see that ball ain't rolling toward your center, shake and beat that thing and cuss the way it's built. Better jump and weave and sway, cause it came to you that way. Now you lose because you made the darn thing kill. I made a hundred, I made a thousand, I made a million, but I won't quit there. I made a million, I'm making millions, I'm gonna be a pinball millionaire. When Fiorello LaGuardia became mayor of New York City in 1934, he immediately made good on campaign promises to take down the mafia particularly mob boss Frank Costello's illegal citywide slot machine operation. It is a fight against a powerful, corrupt, greedy political machine. LaGuardia had a couple thousand of Costello's slots confiscated and destroyed. Those slots were quickly replaced with pin games. Gambling continued while everyone argued over whether pre-flipper pinball was a game of skill or chance. In 1942, after nearly a decade of back and forth on the topic, LaGuardia finally armed the NYPD with sledgehammers and a mandate to smash pinball machines on site. Some 10,000 tables were destroyed while he served as mayor. Several thousand were dumped in the Hudson because who cares about pollution as long as nobody's gambling? Plus, it made for a pretty great picture in the newspaper. These early pinball tables somewhat resembled the Japanese game Pachinko, only kicking one larger ball at a time out onto a horizontal field of pins rather than dumping a bunch of tiny balls at once down a vertical board of pins. The horizontal playing field did make it possible to slightly improve the chances of a ball going where you wanted it to go, but at no point could you gain what anyone would call real control of the ball until the modern flipper setup came along in 1950. Even then, gamblers kept the older version of pinball in high demand. In 1951, an extremely successful gambling pin was introduced to the market with artwork and a layout designed around the theme of bingo cards. The playing field held square grids of numbered pockets corresponding to bingo cards up on the backlit display. If you shot five balls onto numbers lining up a bingo, you won free credits, which you could use to keep playing, or if you were somewhere without much concern for what was and was not legal, maybe you could cash those credits in with the house for real money. On bingo pins, the toughest shot was the pocket in the center of the grid. On many versions, this middle pocket was numbered 16. But all are ever made in a pinball machine. I'd get four candy cornered, then I'd miss the 16. I wish that I'd love them old pinball machines. Many weeks they have caused me to live on sardines. Bingo pins were popular enough to remain in production well into the 1980s, which is why they were still around for Waylon Jennings and Tom Paul Glazer to pump full of money, regardless of the laws in any state where they were playing. The aggressive laws, policies, and positions against pinball were not rewritten when machines with flippers came along in 1950, which meant modern pinball was illegal before it even existed. 
In fact, it was quite some time before most people realized flippers had changed the entire nature of the game, and for much of its existence, pinball was one word we used to refer to two very different things. If you've ever wondered why the rebel character in old movies and TV shows loves to play modern pinball, or there's often a machine in the background of a bar we're supposed to read as sketchy or at least rough, this is why. Because of its hazy legality and conflation with the game's previous incarnation, pinball is a signifier of people with ambiguous morals who will break the law if the reward is having a good time. In the mid-1950s, Elvis Presley was known to play pinball while in Shreveport to appear on the Louisiana Hayride, despite all pinball being illegal in Shreveport until 1970, when a 10-8 to vote barely overturned the ban. Laws against pinball stayed on the books in New York City until 1976, when Roger Sharp took a couple machines into a courtroom and saved the future of the game by demonstrating how many things he could do on purpose, before losing. In Tennessee, there was a law against kids under the age of 18 playing pinball unsupervised until the year 2000. But don't worry, I'm sure Bobby Bear Jr. was never left alone with the three machines his father used to have in his office on Music Row. The confusion surrounding pinball from its start is fitting, perhaps, as the very first coin-operated pin game to become popular was called Baffle Ball. In 1931, Baffle Ball sold 50,000 units. The manufacturer produced 400 machines a day and still could not meet demand which one of the distributors recognized as an opportunity to launch a rival game. In 1932, he sold close to 50,000 units of a pin called Ballyhoo, thus founding a company we all recognize from casinos and jukeboxes bearing the name Bally. This is only a few years into the Great Depression. Everything's going to hell, and two different entrepreneurs strike it rich on something that had not even existed when the market crashed in 29. By the way, these first two breakout pins were not used for gambling. All we're talking about is a few moments of addictive distraction at the cost of a penny. Like I said, given the financial circumstances of the era, it's probably the only ammunition needed by the Fiorello LaGuardias of the world to call a game immoral and parasitic. Maybe you or I would even have agreed at the time. But I'm here to tell you, pinball is responsible for some of the greatest country music that has ever been made. You're listening to Cocaine and Rhinestones, the podcast about 20th century country music and the lives of those who gave it to us. My name is Tyler Mahan Co. I've heard these stories my whole life. As far as I can tell, here's the truth about this one. Nineteen thirty-one. A 29-year-old accountant for the Southern Pacific Railroad Company in Houston, Texas, decides to stop waiting for his turn to be laid off during Depression-era downsizing and find out if people really do continue to spend money on entertainment during a recession. The accountant's name is Harold Daly. In less than five years, his South Coast Amusement Company will be the largest coin-operated amusement machine business in Texas, and he will secure exclusive distribution of an early model of music jukebox manufactured by Bally. Now, a coin-op distributor such as Daily can outright sell you a machine to put in your place of business, which may be the move if you run an arcade and make your money on games and cheap prizes, 
Say you own a soda shop or bar, though. Your money's made at the counter, and you don't need to spend time fixing broken games or keeping up with which records customers want to hear on the jukebox. For you, coin-op machines are just a way to get more people in the door, make them stay a little longer, and spend more money on food and drinks. You'd probably want to work out a deal with Daily to park a machine or two on the premises and take care of all the upkeep himself so you can stay focused on the rest of the business. From Daily's side of things, this is called operating a machine. By the early 1940s, Harold Daly sold, owned, and operated more pin games and jukeboxes than anyone else in the state of Texas. Then, World War II killed off the manufacture of most non-military machinery. Without a supply of jukeboxes to sell, his primary focus became running those he had in operation. Billboard magazine had launched in 1894 with the intention of printing news and numbers in the advertising industry. Around the turn of the century, Billboard pivoted to the entertainment industry, which included coin-operated machines. By the mid-1930s, in addition to reporting sales figures of various pin games, Billboard was using data from jukebox play counters to chart the most played records in major markets, informing operators which popular songs they should consider buying and stocking in their machines. By the early 1940s, Harold Daly found himself paying a lot of attention to these charts. 1945, the war ends. 1946, Daly opens a record store in Houston. Having the most jukeboxes in Texas means having the most data in the market and the ability to stock his shelves accordingly. Other music store owners within driving distance see his success and ask Daly to order stock for their shelves too whenever he makes calls into the record labels. After this goes on for a while, Daly begins to think of himself as someone with a good ear for what songs have the potential to become hit records, which local singers have the potential to become stars. When you own a record store, wannabe singers and musicians tend to hang around, especially after word gets out you've started helping the best of them find record deals on the California-based four-star label. After being sent there by Daly, Webb Pierce and Hank Lachlan both released their first notable records on Four Star. Sometimes you're wishy-washy, you never want me round. Then again, you tell me I'm the sweetest man in town. But every time you leave me, I get the heebie-jeebie blue. And the breeze is on high, play the sweet lullaby. Call the song of the whispering leaves. Lachlan, summing up Daly's role in launching the careers of so many artists, saddles him with the nickname he will carry for the rest of his life, Pappy. And yeah, we could spend all day analyzing the ethics of Pappy Daly using his power as a trusted buyer for so many stores and his army of jukeboxes to potentially influence which records and artists become local hits. But the fact is, this system works so well for everyone involved, nobody questions it. In 1950, MGM Records makes him their exclusive distributor in southern Texas. Also in 1950, a young singer named Lefty Frizzell plays a show in Beaumont, Texas at a honky-tonk called Nevas, owned by Neva Starnes. 
When Neva's husband Jack finds out Lefty Frizzell's management keeps two-thirds of every dollar Lefty earns, Jack decides it's worth spending a week trying to replace Lefty Frizzell's management. He drops everything to go on tour with Lefty, pulling out all the stops to nail this audition. He solves every little problem, even going into his own pocket to cover expenses, knowing he will be more than reimbursed later if he can convince Lefty Frizzell to ditch his current management and sign with Jack. Lefty goes for it and signs a two-year contract giving Jack Starnes exclusive management of Lefty's tour schedule and a slightly less parasitic 50%. But Jack only gets his 50 during the term of the contract, so he starts working Lefty as hard as he can. By the end of 1951, Lefty Frizzell's been on the Louisiana Hayride, the Grand Ole Opry, toured with Hank Williams, and released four number one singles, including his breakout hit and signature song, If You've Got the Money, I've Got the Time. If you got the money, I've got the time, we'll go honky-tonkin' and we'll have a time. We'll make all the night spots, dance, drink beer and wine. If you got the money, honey, I've got the time. Lefty's making so much money, he buys a tour bus and his own airplane to keep up with Starn's constant bookings. On one particularly exhausting leg of a tour, Lefty calls home to have his wife check the contract and see just how long he has left until he can take some time off at home. Which is when his wife finds the clause stating Jack Starnes has the option to keep Lefty working another two years from the expiration of the initial deal should Jack choose to exercise the option, which of course Jack chooses to exercise the option. So Lefty threatens to quit right there, to hell with the contract, he's going home. Jack threatens to have Lefty thrown in prison. Lefty says he'll finish out the original two-year term, but that's it, the ride ends there. He plays all the shows left on his schedule, and he goes home. Jack sues Lefty, Lefty countersues Jack. In the end, June 1952, Lefty Frizzell settles out of court for 25 grand, which is a hell of a lot of money in 1952. Basically, Jack Starnes takes Lefty for everything, even his backing band, who'd signed a separate contract with Neva Starnes to work under the name Blackie Crawford and the Western Cherokees. The Starnes keep Lefty's old band and put him behind whichever local singers they think are good enough to sign and send on tour. It doesn't take long to figure out the bookings are better when pitching an act with a new single, especially one getting lots of plays on jukeboxes and radio in the region. But why should Jack waste time trying to get record labels interested in taking a piece of his artist action when he's got the money and a band to make records on his own? He looks around for a business partner, someone else in the area who could benefit from the ability to press their own records, and lands on Pappy Daly, who by this time has years of experience scouting Texas talent, helping them cut singles, then profiting from local sales and jukebox plays. Pappy had also recently realized how hard Four Star in California was screwing him the entire time, but we'll come back to that in a minute. June 1953. Billboard runs a small blurb on the formation of Star Day Records down in Beaumont, Texas. That Star Day, as in Starnes plus Daily, equals records. As planned, Star Day's first releases are from artists managed by the Starnes. Pappy distributes the records to store shelves and jukeboxes, which helps Jack book the artists on bigger and better shows, 
where larger audiences are exposed to music they can go find in stores and on jukeboxes. It's a pretty solid system. The fourth single, They Work This Way, becomes a nationwide hit and instant standard of country music. When you live in the country, everybody is your neighbor on this one thing you can rely. They'll all come see you, I never, never leave you saying you'll come see us by and by. For the rest of his life, Arlie Duff told it like he was just a school teacher on a long drive towards somewheres else when he got hungry, pulled into Nevis for a bite to eat, heard a country band playing in a back room and sort of accidentally stumbled into country music history by making up a song on the spot to knock everyone out. He must have thought it made for a better story than the truth, which is he'd written the song maybe six months earlier and it was burning a hole in his pocket when he walked into Neva's, knowing exactly what he was there to do. Because word travels fast when touring acts begin driving away from some random honky-tonk gig in Beaumont with record deals, management contracts, and promises of fame and fortune. Just like wannabes hung around Pappy's record store, they came out of the woodworks to make the trip to Neva's and find out if they had what it takes to become the next Lefty Frizzell. The day it was Arlie Duff's turn, he walked out with a record deal. Fall 1953, Starday has their first major local hit with Arlie's You All Come, which is when Jack and Pappy realize in order to break records outside of Texas, in order to turn a major local hit into a national hit, they're going to need to, well, they don't actually know what they're going to need to do. Enter Don Pierce. Don Pierce learned the record business as an employee and part owner of Four Star Records in California. And he loved the record business right up until this asshole named Bill McCall bought a majority stake in the company and became Don's new boss. Don did not like his new boss or agree with the way he conducted business. For example, McCall had this guy out in Texas who was not even an employee of the label fronting his own money to send in tapes of the best local singers he could find. Whenever this guy sent in tapes, he also ordered a sufficient quantity of records to cover Four Star's manufacturing cost, then put his own assets to work promoting the product he'd gifted to the label. Pappy Daly was effectively a one-man self-funded subsidiary label sending free money to Four Star for years. This is only one example of Bill McCall's questionable practices. Eventually, after much hassle, Don Pierce was able to sell his shares in Four Star and break free. But then he couldn't find any other country music work in Los Angeles. Sometime around September of 1953, keeping an eye on industry trades, Don notices a new label on the Texas country music charts. When he discovers Pappy Daly is part of this new operation, Don figures it's worth a phone call to see if Starday needs any help. When Pappy gets this call, You All Come is a huge hit in the Houston area, and Starday simply does not know how to take it to the next level. Pappy essentially being an A&R man and local distributor, he curates and records talent, then makes it possible for everyone within however many miles to spend money on the product. The Starns are essentially booking agents and tour managers. 
These skill sets are not sufficient to run a record label. For one thing, none of these people know how to get a single played on the radio or stocked in stores at a national level. Don Pierce does, so Pappy brings him in. They add a publishing company under the Starday umbrella, then split the label and PubCo in three equal shares between Jack, Pappy, and Don. Don Pierce is the only partner who works full-time at the label. November 1953, Pappy places a full-page ad in Billboard to promote the Arlie Duff record, now being pressed, promoted, and shipped with the shorter title, Y'all Come. The next month, the single goes top 10 in the nation, and Don Pierce calls record stores all over the country to pitch them on stocking Starday's new releases. At some point, Don gives a copy of the Arlie Duff record to Bing Crosby's band leader, who plays it for his boss. Our grandmas are wishing that they'd come out to the kitchen and help to do the dishes right away. But they all start leaving, even though she's a grieving. But you can still hear Grandma say, Well, land of Goshen, dead nabbit. Bring the young uns, you hear me? We'll tie the dog up. Then go put the cat out, too. When Bing Crosby's version sells half a million units, Y'all Come turns into a standard, a song everyone and their uncle must record. BMI names it the most popular song of 1953. Starday Records has existed for less than six months. January 1954, Starday brings George Jones into their studio for the first time. And by studio, I mean Jack Starn's living room, where he records artists on the cheap. Jack's 19-year-old son Bill is the engineer, which means he's stashed away in some other room of the house with all of the recording gear and a switch to control the living room light. Between takes, all the musicians stand in the dark, waiting for the living room light to come on and let them know they are now recording. They must stand still, too, since they've been carefully positioned around the one and only microphone. There is no possibility of overdubbing anything or fixing any mistake. If a loud vehicle drives by in the middle of a take, they have to reset and start the song over. But this is about as good as it gets for home studios in 1954, and besides, it's not like they're recording the greatest country singer ever. George Jones is just some singing marine who got a letter from Starnes the year before saying he should come talk to Starday when he got out of the service. Being a devout Lefty Frizzell fan, it's likely George was marginally aware of Starn's connection to the most successful period of Lefty Frizzell's early career, if not the full particulars of how it all worked out for Lefty. So when George returns home to Beaumont in November of 1953, as Starday's Y'all Come is becoming the biggest song in the country, he wastes very little time before swinging by the label. Now he's here, standing in the dark, waiting for the light to come on and let him know it's time to start singing. Take one, for sale or for lease, George Jones. And he just can't help himself. Every show he plays, no matter what, he always covers a few Lefty Frizzell songs in a dead-on impersonation. The crowds always go nuts for it, especially on ballads, the slow songs with enough space to twist the words all into knots. Sometimes people say he sounds just as good as Lefty. When this light comes on, he'll be singing with Lefty Frizzell's actual band behind him, and there'll be a recording he can listen to later. 
He has to know. And if you'd only say that you'd come back and stay, then it wouldn't be for sale or lay. After for sale or for lease, George tries on Lefty again for If You Were Mine. Don't you think, maybe, you could be mine? Go tell your pappy, it would make me happy if I can marry you, Kathy. Oh, please say you'll be mine. Then he kicks over to his equally popular impersonation of his personal favorite singer, putting more than a little Hank Williams in the next couple songs. Due to the title, people who don't waste time listening to music before writing about it often erroneously refer to Play It Cool Man, Play It Cool as a rock or rockabilly song. In truth, it is straight up honky tonk country. Now if your baby stepping out and makes you feel like a fool, don't blow your top, don't rave and shout, let cool man play it cool. She'll run around and have her fun. She'll act like a kid in school, but she'll get tired and come back home playing cool man play it cool. As is, you're in my heart. As I go down life's highway, every night and every day, please believe me when I say you're in my heart. Nothing dear could change my mind. Hard to stay dear all the time. Of all the songs from this living room session, George Jones' first record sounds the least like one other singer and the most like a different genre of music. On No Money in This Deal, George switches between his Hank Williams and his Lefty Frizzell for a near rockabilly update of Lefty's If You've Got the Money, I've Got the Time. I'll be here and I will marry you if you say that you will do anything I say until you buy me an automobile but I won't stay with you still unless there's money in this day. When the single came out in February of 1954, George drove copies around to all the local radio stations and asked them to play it. Some did, but not enough to make much of a splash. No matter, the following month, Starday launched the Houston Hometown Jamboree, a country music concert broadcast live on radio. The Jamboree featured a core lineup of artists from the Starday roster, plus a few guest singers each week. George Jones was on the first broadcast, along with Starday's two main moneymakers, Arlie Duff and Sonny Burns. Fate has planned a place for girls like you Who torture guys like me And the time for all bad things to end Will surely come to me The world will turn its back on those 
who never could be true And you'll find out that fate has planned a place for girls like you Arlie had the bigger record and therefore brought in more money to Starday. It's a little-known fact George Jones picked up some early session work playing the flat-picked acoustic guitar on Arlie Duff's Let Me Be Your Salty Dog and Back to the Country. But Sonny Burns was an extremely popular live act in the Houston area, and he happened to think George Jones was a great singing-slash-drinking partner. The Jamboree crowd loved it when they sang duets, which made Sonny and Jones a bigger draw and worth more money when booked together on the road. They spent a lot of time traveling, singing, and partying together. Since they were such an immediately popular live act, Starday tried recording them together about a month after the first Jamboree back in Starn's living room. But let's skip ahead another month to their first session in a better studio. Bill Quinn's Gold Star Studios in Houston was not on the level of studios then being built by Owen Bradley in Nashville, but it was a lot better than Jack Starn's living room. This is where Sonny Burns and George Jones recorded Heartbroken Me, written by Big Red Hayes. Heartbroken me, lonesome as can be. Heartbroken, sad, and so blue. Lonesome for your charms and your loving arms. Heartbroken, cause I'm losing you. The single wasn't a hit, but soon after this session, based on their growing reputations as live performers, Arlie Duff, Sonny Burns, and George Jones were all added to a Grand Ole Opry package tour with Marty Robbins and Ray Price at the top of the bill. By this time, Pappy Daly had begun to take a special interest in young George Jones. Anyone could hear the boy sang his ass off and audiences seemed to adore him, so Pappy made it a priority to be in the studio whenever George recorded, just in case there was anything he could do on the front end to help the kid get a hit. It took about another year from that first Opry package tour for anything special to happen on tape. In the interim, Starday lost one of its founding partners, and Big Red Hayes wrote one of the best songs of all time. According to Hayes, he grew up with pretty philosophical parents. He said most of the ideas in his song came from things his mother said over the years, and the title came from the time his father told him to make a guess as to who was the richest man in the world. Hayes threw out a few names of famous rich men, but to each one, his father said no. The wealthiest person is a pauper at times Compared to the man with the satisfied mind Gene Shepard, Red Foley, and Porter Wagner were in Springfield, Missouri for the Ozark Jubilee the first time they heard Hayes do A Satisfied Mind. All three singers knew it was a hit, 
so they made a deal for everyone to cut it with the understanding they'd release their single simultaneously, giving everyone a fair chance at having the hit. They all had the hit. Once I was waiting in fortunes and fame Everything that I dreamed for Could get a start in life's game But suddenly it happened I lost every dime But I'm richer by far Shepard and Foley both went top five, and Porter took it all the way to number one. Money can't buy back your youth when you're old, or a friend when you're lonely, or a love that's grown cold. The wealthiest the list of people who've cut the song since then is impossibly long. Within two years of launching their little country music label and publishing company, Starday was cashing checks for two of the biggest hits of the decade, songs still being recorded today. And here's where Jack Starnes took the opportunity to cash out his shares and walk, which may seem like a pretty stupid thing to do, and at this particular moment, it was, but Jack only ever viewed the label as a tool in service of his booking and management business. Say he's on the phone trying to book some premium gig and the jerk on the other end wants to know if Jack's artist has a new single out. If Starnes can't lie, say yes, and throw something together real fast to land the check, then what's the point of owning a record label, right? Well, ask Don Pierce and he'll tell you the primary point of owning a record label is to also own a publishing company and to stay in business long enough to build a catalog of earning copyrights. Abandoning studio schedules, promotion and release strategies to suit the immediate needs of a part owner's booking agency is not the point of owning a record label, at least not a profitable one. And Don Pierce did have to say all of this to Jack Starnes, however many times it took for Jack to finally understand Starday would not drop everything to meet his requests. Jack got all pissed off and sold his part of Starday to only Pappy Daly. Once Jack was out, Pappy turned around and sold half those shares back to Don so the partnership remained equal. Then they got some pretty interesting tape on George Jones. According to Pappy, the most involvement he had during recording sessions was telling George to stop impersonating famous singers. He'd wait until a take was over, say it was the best damn mockingbird act he'd ever heard, but could George now, please, sing one like George Jones so they can sell some records? The man had a point. Honky-tonk crowds love a good impersonation, but Jones hadn't yet learned how the tricks he used to make bar rooms cheer weren't worth much in a recording studio. Run through his early sessions and you can hear the layers of paint being sanded away until the natural grain starts to show through. March 1955, George cuts What's Wrong With You. What's wrong with you, darling? You treat me so unkind. 
thing to start anew Why do you try to find another You could be happier with me I wish I knew, I really do What's wrong with you? It sounds like someone overdubbing honky-tonk piano and vocals on a slowed-down and warbled Hank Williams recording, which makes it sound more than a little bit like Roy Acuff. On Painless Heart, George takes another step toward Roy Acuff. That look in your eyes tells me that you're not sorry For you never cared from the start Cause I woke up this morning with that same old feeling Felt sorry for your painless heart You've got a painless heart way deep down inside you Unworthy because you don't care there's no telling if he even knew he was doing it. We're in his fifth recording session ever, and for much of his adult life, it would be an understatement to call George Jones a bundle of nerves. Now he's got one of the label owners in the studio saying he sounds too much like Hank and to do something different. It's a stressful situation. Consciously or not, he reaches further into his bag of voices and pulls out whatever's there. Roy Acuff was certainly deeper in the bag than Hank Williams, because for nearly a decade prior to Hank's first record, Roy was George's favorite singer. When you say you love me true, that no other one will do, that if we part, your heart would break in two. Did these words just go astray? Do you mean just what you say? Please tell me, darling, is it love or lie? July 1955, Pappy finally gets George to sound mostly like himself in a session. Although you should pay special attention to the way he sings the word kid in What Am I Worth to hear just a second of his earnest tub. I know mama loved me, I reckon the dad thought I was a pretty good kid. I've been blamed, but I'm not ashamed of a couple of things I did. I learned the golden rule before I started to school, like every little young'un should do. I mean a lot to my mom and pop, I just hope I mean something to you. As Jones worked backwards through his biggest influences, cherry-picking keepsakes on the way to finding his own voice, country music fans began paying attention. January 1956, What Am I Worth comes out and hits the top 10 country records as the follow-up to a top 5 single already released from the same session. Believe whichever version of the story you like best. Maybe Sonny Burns was supposed to record a duet with George, but Sonny got too drunk or didn't care or who knows what happened, he failed to show up. Whether it's true or not, whether it was planned or not. Well, I got a crow I wanna pick with you. Just like last time when the feathers flew. You're running wild, kicking up your heels. Leaving me home with a handful of bills. George Jones did show up for a session at Gold Star where they had the equipment for him to overdub a second vocal and make Why Baby Why a duet with himself. His is the only voice on the recording. You appreciate a good man. Tell me why, baby, why, baby, why, baby, why you make me cry, baby, cry, baby, cry, baby, cry. 
till the day that I die. So tell me why, baby, why, baby, why, baby, why? George wrote Why Baby Why with Daryl Edwards, a childhood neighbor who started bringing around hit songs when he found out the kid next door grew up to have a record deal with Starday. George probably has a co-writing credit on many songs he did not actually help Daryl write, but he did finish this one because Daryl was off in the Coast Guard when Starday wanted George to cut it. Don Pierce claimed he always knew Why Baby Why was the hit, but Pappy favored a different song from the session. This was possibly a cover story to keep himself from looking foolish for putting George Jones' first hit on the B-side of a record. If so, the explanation was unnecessary because anyone who did not have a crystal ball would have put a spliced-together fake duet on the B-side of a record. The A-side was another Daryl Edwards song, Seasons of My Heart. Although clearly sung by a huge Hank Williams fan, Pappy Daly must have heard enough George Jones in this recording to choose it as the big seller. Your leaving will bring autumn sorrow And my tears like withered leaves will fall But spring could bring I'm glad tomorrow And darling, we could be happy after all When the George Jones single shipped in fall of 1955, DJs who flipped it found much stronger listener response from Why Baby Why. Starday quickly changed their promo campaign and pushed the B-side in all marketing and advertisements. The record soon went number four country. For what it's worth, Pappy probably wasn't wrong about Seasons of My Heart. The song went top ten the following year when Jimmy C. Newman covered it. As it is in nature's plan, no season gets the upper hand. Oh, how I try to keep this fact in mind. As did a version by Johnny Cash five years later. The trees are bare, the cold wind blows, and by experience we should know winter comes, but the spring is close behind. When George Jones started hitting the top 10, he learned all about the then standard industry practice of major labels having their artists cover the latest records from newcomers like him. From the perspective of a major label, the strategy is a no-brainer. Take a song starting to do well for some relatively unknown act in an isolated market and put your comparatively massive resources behind it. We're talking a bigger budget for everything from recording to promotion, much wider distribution, and a major artist who already has a huge audience. This used to be nearly unfuck-uppable. However, from the perspective of an indie label, a major label cover could kill your record. In fact, that's why it's called covering a song. The idea is for the major label to blanket the national market with a new record covering the regional hit from sight. This is what concerned Pappy Daly when Webb Pierce covered Why Baby Why as an actual duet with Red Sovine. Cry, baby, cry, baby, cry. I can't help but love you till the day that I die. So tell me why, baby, why, 
Back in the day, Webb was still working as a shoe salesman at Sears when Pappy first sent him to Four Star. But his first number one record on Decca hit in 1951, and he had not missed the top 10 since. Why Baby Why was a guaranteed smash for Webb Pierce, and guaranteed to Barry Starday's record. So Pappy called Webb to cash in a favor, and Decca pulled their single from the market to give George Jones enough room to do whatever he could do. A month after Starday's Why Baby Why peaked at number four, Decca re-released the Webb Pierce and Red Sovine cover. It hit number one and became one of the 10 best-selling country singles of 1956. This was a monumental favor Webb Pierce did for Pappy Daly. You will almost never hear of someone in the music industry going to such lengths, certainly delaying and potentially diminishing huge returns on a sure thing number one single in order to repay a personal debt. This is just as much a testament to Pappy's support of young artists as it is to Webb's sense of loyalty. It can't have been easy for Webb to convince his label or even his duet partner to pull the single. The B-side of Decca's original release had Red Sovine covering 16 tons. The Merle Travis song Tennessee Ernie Ford had burning up the charts. But Decca's re-release, the record that went number one, had Red singing a song he wrote on the B-side, which was likely the extra incentive he required to go along with Webb's request. And I have no earthly idea how they talked Decca into pulling the single, but by the time Webb and Red were on top of the charts with Why Baby Why, George Jones had spun his hit record into an appearance on the Louisiana Hayride. Here to get the good ship launched tonight is that Why Baby Why boy, George Jones. Followed by more hits and bigger package tours with, among other stars, Johnny Cash, Carl Smith, and Ray Price. They toured all over North America, even Canada. In early 1956, Jones played the Grand Ole Opry for the first time. In August, they made him a member. Various magazines voted him best new country fill-in-the-blank. All this momentum soon carried Starday into a merger with Mercury Records. Hey everybody, it's Tyler with an announcement that season two of this podcast has been adapted into a book from Simon & Schuster. Yes, that Simon & Schuster. The book comes out the first week of September, but you can pre-order it now, anywhere that carries new books. Alternately, now would be a great time for those of you with a library card to request your local branch order a copy for you to check out when the book is released. I'm also thrilled to announce the book features dozens of original illustrations from Wayne White that add an entirely new dimension to the story. If you would like to see that artwork and learn more about the book, go to cocaineandrhinestones.com and select Book from the main menu for a page with several links to explore. Thank you for listening. But let's go back to cover songs for a minute, because there's a lot we need to understand about how different the record industry was when regional markets existed. And if you were feeling bad for the little indie labels getting their records covered by the majors, you should know this street ran both ways. In the days of regional markets, it was entirely possible to take a hometown hero and successfully cover a national hit before it reached your turf. 
You had to be quick and you had to be smart. But if you did it right, the kids buying records in your area may never care as much about the original hit whenever they eventually heard it. That's how big a deal local artists used to be. A February 1956 issue of Billboard lists the best-selling and most-played country music singles in the United States, but also contains lists of which records are performing best in various regions of the nation. For example, in this issue, Why Baby Why by Pierce and Sovine is the third best-selling single in the nation, down from number two the previous week, and Why Baby Why by George Jones is the 12th best-selling single in the nation, down from number seven. Kick over to the local charts and it's mostly the same story nationwide, the newer major label record outselling the indie label's older original, except in Houston, New Orleans, and St. Louis, three major markets in the path of George Jones' regular touring circuit. In those cities, George's follow-up record is crushing Decca. What Am I Worth is the best-selling single in Houston, a not-so-small pond in which it's very worth trying to be the biggest fish. Then, in the mid-1950s, everything began to change. Every year's advancements in telecommunications technology made it harder for truly independent labels to beat the majors in regional markets. Thanks to nationally syndicated radio and now television shows, music fans were increasingly likely to have already heard the original hit before you could possibly get out a cover from a local artist, thereby upping the odds of your local artist sounding unoriginal and uncool by comparison, like a cheapo generic imitation of a popular cereal brand. Of course, there will always be a market for the cheapo generic imitation of anything, and music is no exception. With regional hit covers becoming an untenable strategy, indie labels leaned into the practice of creating soundalikes, essentially audio forgeries of popular recordings. quite bootleg so much as a cheaper alternative version, often produced and packaged in such a way as to allow buyers to believe they may have found a great deal on the actual hit record. Because of the obvious potential for negative fallout here, steps were taken to protect the identity and legitimate careers of artists used for soundalikes. Singers worked under pseudonyms and producers traded sound-alike masters with indie labels in other regions to put distance between locally famous voices and fans who may recognize them. Studying industry trends in this period, Don Pierce reached two conclusions. One, most country music was purchased by adults rather than kids. And two, adults preferred buying the new EP and LP formats rather than the singles preferred by a younger audience. So Starday set up the Dixie Records subsidiary to release compilations of soundalikes without compromising the integrity of the main label. By cramming three songs on each side of 345s and packaging it as one unit, 
they could get 18 songs into a set of EPs. One side of each record typically contained the original version of at least one legitimate hit, either something from Starday's catalog or licensed in trade from another label running the same racket. These tracks were always specified on the label as, quote, the original hit recording. Surrounding those hits, though, were soundalikes. At bargain prices, these Dixie EP collections flew off the shelves. In October of 1956, Starday released their first LP, Country Song Hits by Grand Ole Opry's new star, George Jones. Nearly every song had already come out on one side or the other of a George Jones single, but fans still bought the LP. Maybe their records had been worn out, scratched, or stolen. Maybe they just didn't want to get off the couch every three minutes to change a record listening to one song at a time. Three of the 14 included songs had been top 10 hits, which may have led fans to save shelf space by trading out multiple records for this LP. In any case, Starday's eventual philosophy of business was set in wax on those Dixie EPs and this first LP. Give the potential buyer a few familiar hits on a track list, and they will probably suspect the rest of the album is of similar quality, which gets you most of the way toward making a sale. The other major paradigm shift in the mid-1950s was rock and roll practically a political movement in the existential threat it posed to country music. At the beginning of 1956, Elvis Presley's cut of Heartbreak Hotel was the biggest song in the United States and his second not-country-at-all single to go number one on the country charts. Well, so lonely, they could die. Well, if your baby you, you got a tale to tell. Well, just take a walk down the Imagine you're in the business of trying to put records as close as you can to the top of country charts, and here comes some kid who starts tossing hits up there like it's nothing without even bothering to make sure he's in the right genre. Even if you've got a young country singer who recently started going top 10, playing all the radio shows and package tours every artist plays on their way to becoming the next big thing in country music, well, maybe it starts to look like the next big thing in country music isn't going to be a thing at all. Maybe it starts to look like the party's over. George Jones once described this era to Nick Toshis by saying, quote, With rock and roll getting as strong as it was at that time, it seemed like country music was really a losing battle, except for the three or four major artists that had it made at that time, like Lefty Frizzell, Ernest Tubb, Roy Acuff, some of those people, end quote. Most country artists in the 1950s spoke of rock and roll like they thought it sounded as bad as wet garbage smells in 100-degree weather. They said they were confused as to why anyone would want to listen to some kid have a fake conniption fit into a microphone while his band played their instruments poorly, either on purpose or because they just weren't very good musicians. But you've got to remember this new noise appeared almost sentient in its mission to conquer and replace country music. Rather than build their own platforms from the ground up, rock and roll acts invaded those of country music, going where the stages and audiences already were to take over country barn dances and radio shows. As tropes of this new genre crystallized with popularity, hordes of screaming fans drove away and replaced the audience who'd previously filled these venues to hear country music. As the new genre moved in on country's markets, stages, and radio stations, 
so did the first hit rock and roll records move in on country charts, with trend-driven sales towering above even the best-selling artists using a country music sound. Some country artists recognized how much money could be made in rock and roll and tried crossing over, but others saw this as switching sides in what they and many fans felt had become an us-versus-them battle. Singers in particular, the people with their names and faces on album covers, were hesitant to risk their reputations with country fans by trying to court a rock audience. But let's be honest, country musicians could cut this rock bullshit without even trying, and if a country singer who was already doing sound-alike work did want to earn a few bucks off rock and roll, well, they already knew how to keep their identity a secret. All of which explains how an indie country label like Starday could take their most promising singer, who they famously and repeatedly begged to stop singing like other people, and send him into the studio in March of 1956, mere weeks after his second top 10 hit, to record an entire session of soundalikes, including Heartbreak Hotel. Well, since my baby left me, found a new place to dwell. Down at the end of Lonely Street, at Heartbreak Hotel. Well, I'll be so lonely, baby. I'll be so lonely. I'll be so lonely, I could die. Starday traded this recording to the Tops label in Los Angeles, where it was released under the pseudonym Hank Smith. They had George Jones cut more rock material in his next session, released under the alias Thumper Jones. By any measure, these are not important singles, but they are interesting because for the rest of his career, anytime someone asks about these records, George says something negative and attempts to distance himself from a thing nobody was ever supposed to know he did, nor would they if he hadn't gone and turned himself into a legend, inspiring countless fans to dig through the garbage of his life. However, when he has his first number one country record only a few years later, it's with a song he continues to perform for the rest of his career, a song he never badmouths in any way, and a song that rocks a whole lot more than it billies. So maybe most country artists really did think rock music was wet hot trash. Many were told by their record labels to ditch the fiddles and steel guitars if they wanted to keep their deals, which can certainly inform the way a person feels and the things a person says about a style of music. But it's also true some such remarks made in liner notes and interviews were nothing more than the result of competent PR coaches instructing their artists to give good copy by throwing strong opinions into a divisive narrative. The fact is, country music was one of the foundational genres necessary for rock and roll to come into existence. On a purely sonic level, the dividing lines between rock music and hardcore honky-tonk were impossibly blurry in the early days. For instance, Glenn Barber's 
ice water. I got an old time car all shiny black, all dressed up like a Cadillac. If I look too shot, don't let me start her. Wash my face in ice cold water. We're gonna have a good time, baby. We're gonna have a good, good time. If I should balk and my step get shorter, wash my face in ice cold water. Despite the jazzy slang sprinkled throughout the lyrics for anyone hip enough to spot it, there's no question this sounded like a straight-up honky-tonk barn burner to most anyone who happened to hear the single. No, I slept last night, the night before that, but I can't sleep if I'm a real good cat. We'll both go crazy if a drag don't bother. Wash my face in ice-cold water. Keep me going strong, baby. Keep me going strong. If I don't jump when the band gets hotter, wash my face in ice-cold water. Ice Water was cut in the same living room studio as George Jones' first Starday sessions and came out on Starday in 1954. Glenn Barber later played guitar on Why Baby Why. Starday's flirtation with rock and roll went much deeper than secret pseudonym sound-alikes and treating steel guitar like country music camouflage. Sonny Fisher was just one of the label's country artists who began unapologetically recording rockabilly music in the mid-1950s. By 1956, Glenn Barber was cutting undisguised rock and roll, saxophone and all. Going down in the morning, gonna harvey a private eye. Going down in the morning, gonna harvey a private eye. Gonna find out, baby, if you're messing with another guy. I got in laws, ten folk crawling all over me. I got in laws, ten folk crawling all over me. Living under my roof, wearing better clothes than me. Not many people have heard of Sonny Fisher or Glenn Barber, and great as they may be, these singles didn't do much to change that, probably because one of Starday's owners legitimately hated rock music. After spending decades referring to Starday's rockabilly sessions as a failed experiment, Don Pierce finally admitted he never even really tried to promote the rock records because he didn't have the first clue where to start. However, staying in his lane is what kept Starday in the business of releasing country hits, while other artists and producers in the genre made huge swerves trying to figure out where they were on the map. Take Ray Price. His cut of Crazy Arms spent more weeks at number one than any other song in 1956. But Ray Price only had one number one country record in a year when Elvis Presley released four. So Elvis held the top spot for more weeks than any other artist in 1956. In 1957, hoping to get back above Elvis... Back above Jerry Lee Lewis. Come on over, baby. Whole lot of shaking going on. Yes, I said, come on over. 
Back above the Everly Brothers. Wake up, little Susie, wake up. Wake up, little Susie, wake up. Ray Price jumped all the way into the Nashville sound. When you get lonely at the close of day, I'll be the one who'll kiss your tears away. Just close your eyes and say a prayer And I'll be there Since everyone already had Johnny Ray records, I'll Be There When You Get Lonely didn't even crack the top 10, prompting an immediate return to his 4-4 shuffle on My Shoes Keep Walking Back to You And my arms keep reaching which walked Ray Price back to number one. In 1958, Ray Price charted at number one for three months by finding a middle ground between his old sound and the Nashville sound on City Lights. The world was dark and God made stars to brighten up the night. But God who put the stars above, I don't believe, made those lights. It's just a place for men to cry When things don't turn out right Just a place to run away and hide Behind the city lights None of his 60s singles went number one, but continuing to straddle the sonic line between Texas and Nashville did keep him near the top of the chart for much of the decade. In the Shelby Singleton episode of season one, you heard some of how Star Day came to briefly merge with Mercury Records in Nashville. Here is the rest of it. 1956, Jim Denny is fired from the Grand Ole Opry and the head of Mercury's country operations, D. Kilpatrick, quits to go take Denny's job. The reason Kilpatrick goes to the Opry is Mercury has been steadily losing their biggest country artist and he knows the label is headed into 1957 with a barely-there roster of the Stanley Brothers, Jimmy Skinner, Carl Story, and that's about it. So now Mercury needs someone to build and manage a country division. They take a look around at who's doing well in the genre, and there's Starday, the little indie who could. Starday's flagship LP, the first collection of George Jones hits, came out in October 1956 and was an instant success. A month earlier, they released a George Jones single which wasn't included on the LP, so fans had to purchase it separately. Well, one more drink of wine, then if you're still on my mind, one drink, just one more, and then another. And 
just one more, went top 10 country, while Elvis Presley's Not Country, Don't Be Cruel held the number one position. The month before that, Stardy released Benny Barnes' first hit single, Poor Man's Riches. For a true love's the greatest of all riches A true love will never grow cold And a true love is all it really matters For it's worth more than diamonds, pearls and gold which went top 10 country, while Elvis Presley's Don't Be Cruel sat at number one. This is more than doing well in the genre during a confusing time. This is an independent label repeatedly achieving mainstream success by sticking to what they know, dealing almost exclusively in country music, and winning with innovative business strategy. I know of no other such label in this period. Other indies did exist, but most had to seriously work multiple genres to stay afloat, and none of the 90%-plus country operations could hold a candle to start a track record. November 1956, Mercury Records co-founder Art Talmadge meets up with Pappy Daly at the DJ convention in Nashville to make a proposition. Placing Mercury's greater resources behind Starday's roster and approach to running a country label and calling the joint venture Mercury Starday. As you know, this is what happens, and about a year and a half into the five-year contract, Mercury terminates the deal early. Don Pierce will later grudgingly admit Mercury had a valid complaint. The vast majority of singles released on Mercury Starday came from Starday's publishing company, which was more of a priority for Don than whether or not the songs were any good. Don's views on the matter were, and I quote, Why would we go to a publisher who lets us be privileged enough to use their song and then put all of our money into promoting their stuff? Fuck that. End quote. If more of the songs in Starday's catalog were hits, Mercury probably would not have cared. But now Mercury wants out of the whole arrangement and they also want to keep the few artists who continued to sell records, like George Jones. Pappy Daly explains to Don how Mercury has so much money it wouldn't even be worth trying to fight all their lawyers who'd probably just wrestle out of the contract in the end anyway. Then Pappy mentions he's staying with Mercury too, which is when Don Pierce gets the picture and agrees to the split. And right here's where the value in Don Pierce's perspective on how and why to own a record label and publishing company becomes clear. Because the way he and Pappy agree to split the Starday catalog is by tossing a coin to see who gets first pick, then taking turns calling out a letter of the alphabet to secure all the song titles beginning with that letter. So when Don wins the coin toss and calls out S as his first pick, he walks away with the label's biggest earner, a satisfied mind. On his next turn, he takes Y for Y'all Come then W for Y Baby Y. Meanwhile, Pappy Daly uses his first three turns to pick his favorite songs with no consideration given to any title's monetary value. When Pappy gets his first royalty check following the split and it's nowhere near what he knows half the Starday catalog is worth, he's furious and slaps Don Pierce with a lawsuit. 
a mutual friend has to lock them in a hotel room at a business conference to get them to work out a more financially even split. As part of this final arrangement, Starday, aka Don Pierce, walks away with 50% of George Jones Publishing for the next 18 months, plus the Mercury Starday office building. Even though Pierce will later say the move to Nashville is what opened the door for Starday to become, quote, a force in country music, he deliberately placed their office at a remove from the rest of the Nashville industry, all of whom he regarded as competition. Ten miles away from Music Row, Starday set up shop as the leading alternative brand. There, major labels used the Nashville sound to fish for attention from pop and rock audiences. Here, hardcore country lives on in an anti-Nashville sound. The majors have money to throw behind, promoting hot new singles on radio to a young audience, but Starday knows they don't have to go through radio if they're only trying to get to those kids' parents, who don't really like much of what they're hearing on radio these days anyway. All Starday has to do is package a few hits with some filler, then use all 12 inches of an album cover to sell it from the shelf. Even today, old Starday LPs practically jump out of a stack of country albums. Loud jackets with color photographs, gaudy fonts, and usually some type of genre manifesto disguised as liner notes. You're gonna see the word country a lot, and it'll be next to words like real and authentic and true. If you take a drink for every cowboy hat you see on a Starday album cover, you will die. Photos show artists holding the old-timey instruments supposedly feared by producers like Chet Atkins and Owen Bradley, or, you know, holding a rooster, maybe while standing near a horse, or sitting on a horse, near a fence, near a barn, in a field, by a creek. Starday uses album jackets to tell anyone who may care to know they're still making country music the way it was made before rock and roll, and the music's there to back it up. Like Wayne Rainey's, we need a whole lot more of Jesus and a lot less rock and roll. We need a good old case of salvation and the love of God in our souls. We need a whole lot more of Jesus and a lot less of rock and roll. Wayne Rainey was a songwriter and harmonica player who hosted a Cincinnati radio show on which Don Pierce bought advertising for Starday Records. Whenever Rainey played a song from Starday, he'd be sure to tell listeners they could get it directly from the label, plugging the mail-order catalog Don Pierce sent free of charge to any distributor, retailer, or residence who wanted one. With the Nashville labels and radio stations catering to young pop and rock audiences, older country music fans felt forgotten. For Starday, direct-to-consumer sales reinforced their identity as the anti-Nashville, sending the message, we haven't forgotten you or your kind of country, and we'll ship it right to your doorstep. Hell, if you want to make your own country records, we'll do that too. Just send in a master tape of an original song and a little over $100 for Starday to send back 300 copies of your brand new single, 100 of which were pressed on higher quality vinyl, packaged and pre-addressed to the 100 nearest radio stations most likely to play it. There was the small matter of the release form giving the song's publishing rights to Don Pierce in case he ever wanted to release it on Starday proper, but customers received royalties when this happened. If by some small chance a custom pressing client happened to become the next big thing, the release form also gave Starday the option to retain their services as a recording artist. 
So it was essentially a probationary contract with the artist covering their own studio cost and doing most of the legwork, while Starday watched and waited to see if they were worth anything. A whole lot of wannabes and some gonnabes tried to get their start in the business through Starday's custom press program. Willie Nelson sent in his very first single to be pressed by Starday in 1957. While No Place For Me didn't make Willie a star, he did already have a DJ gig and used his radio show to sell out the initial order, then print another run. Though their custom press operation was one of the most reliable, Starday were not the first or only label to do this. Don Pierce had overseen a nearly identical service all the way back at Four Star in California. When Don was at Four Star, yet another country music DJ sent in a song. Don't let the stars get in your eyes, don't let the moon break your heart. Love blooms at night, in daylight it dies, don't let the stars get in your eyes. Oh, keep your heart for me, for someday I'll return, and you know you're the only one I'll ever love. Slim Willett's initial order of Don't Let the Stars Get in Your Eyes sold out fast enough to warrant his ordering another 5,000 units, so Don figured they ought to go ahead and put out the record on Four Star. It went number one in 1952. Perry Como covered it the same year and took it to number one on the pop charts. Too many miles, too many miles, too many days, too many days, too many nights to be alone. In 1953, after Kitty Wells' It Wasn't God Who Made Honky Tonk Angels, Goldie Hill became the second woman to go number one country as a solo artist, also with an answer song called I Let the Stars Get In My Eyes. His love was so grand when he held my hand, you know how the moonlight lures you on. Goldie Hill's answer song was adapted from the original by her brother, Tommy Hill, who also wrote slowly for Webb Pierce around the same time. Goldie and Tommy Hill both signed artist contracts with Decca, but Tommy didn't put out a number one single right away like his sister did, so the label dropped him by the end of the year. J.D. Miller of Feature Records signed him, then farmed him out to Hickory Records, the same as Rusty and Doug Kershaw, complete with J.D. Miller magically appearing as a co-writer on every side written by Tommy Hill. After a couple years without much action, Tommy went back to not having a record deal and playing in the backup bands of other artists which is what he was doing when he ran into Don Pierce near the end of 1958, just after the Mercury Starday split. Don was in need of another pair of hands to pack and ship records in the Starday warehouse, and Tommy had never quit looking for another record deal or whatever other work he could find in the meantime, so the two came to an arrangement. 
Tommy Hill did start recording for Star Day in March of 1959, cutting some singles and some compilation filler. They treated me so mean that it drove me mad. They started acting friendly when they heard I had all on my land. Though it was nothing but dirty old sand. I've got a happier life, a beautiful wife, and all on my land. But he became much more important to the story behind the scenes as an employee of the label. After hanging around long enough to get a feel for Don's approach to business, Tommy pointed out how much money Starday could save if they built their own studio. Then he went and found the label's first post-Mercury hit to help cover the cost of construction. Frankie Miller was another one of those singers Pappy Daly sent to Four Star while Don was still there, and Don remembered Frankie's early stuff being quite good, but Frankie got drafted to Korea in 1952. When Frankie came back in 1954, Columbia signed him, but the thing about Frankie Miller is he was practically a Hank Williams impersonator. The Hank Williams style of doing things was on its way out, and in 1956, after rock and roll hit the mainstream, Columbia dropped Frankie Miller. Get up, hip boy! A few years plugging away on the live circuit and fronting the cost to record whenever he could afford it brought him back Starday's way in early 59. Yet another sign of the country music industry's lack of interest in actual country music in this era Frankie recorded Blackland Farmer a full two years earlier at Gold Star Studios in Houston and tried selling the tape to every label he could get to listen to it before Tommy Hill finally heard it and knew it was just the kind of thing his boss would want. When the Lord made me, he made a sample man. Not much money and not much land. He didn't make me no banker or legal charmer. When the Lord made me, he made a black land farmer. Well, my hands ain't smooth. My face is rough, but my heart is warm and my ways ain't tough. I guess I'm the luckiest man ever born, cause the Lord gave me health and a black land farm. That is Glenn Barber you're hearing on guitar again. Starday released the record in March of 1959 and it hit number five country. They finished construction on the new studio in May of the following year. When the labels on Starday Records began to read a Tommy Hill Starday Studios production, it's because Tommy was put in charge of the studio he had conceptualized and found the money to build. Some of his go-to session players were Pete Drake on pedal steel, Hank Garland on guitar, Junior Husky on bass, and Willie Ackerman on drums. The anti-Nashville sound label used several of the same musicians who helped create and continued to record the Nashville sound only a few miles down the road. It wasn't only Frankie Miller and other unsigned artists struggling to sell hard country music to the major labels. The artists they'd actually signed couldn't do it either. With few exceptions, acts who kept showing up to the studio with twang long after it stopped selling were told to stop showing up at all. And wouldn't you know it, Don Pierce found room at Starday to sign all the major label cast-offs who wanted to keep making country music. His label went from branding itself as the little guy still making country music the way Nashville did in the good old days to literally making country music the way Nashville did in the good old days putting the exact same people to work in a different building down the road. 
It's worth noting the handful of country artists who Mercury brought to the Mercury Star Day merger, Jimmy Skinner, Carl Story, the Stanley Brothers, every one of them later ended up on Star Day. To quote Don Pierce, if they were an established act, I wasn't interested in putting out singles because I couldn't get them on jukeboxes. But if they'd played 20 years on the Opry, I knew they could sell albums, end quote. Some of the acts Starday picked up from other labels were Red So Vine, Justin Tubb, Lonzo and Oscar, Archie Campbell, Johnny Bond, Floyd Tillman, Pee Wee King, The Blue Sky Boys, and T-Texas Tyler. Pierce also began releasing material from artists we would call legacy acts or musicians' musicians. People like Minnie Pearl, Texas Ruby, Harry Schultz, Cowboy Copus, Stringbean Aikman, Shot Jackson, Buddy Emmons, Moon Mulligan, and members of Roy Acuff's band, the Smoky Mountain Boys. As far as Don was concerned, the more twang it had, the easier he could sell it. And it certainly doesn't get much twangier than the style of music which by the late 1950s had come to be known as bluegrass. Some of the all-time great bluegrass recordings came out on Star Day. Rank Stranger by the Stanley Brothers. Everybody I Bill Clifton's Code of the Mountain LP. I'm an anchor of corn in a cabin of pine. But it don't pay the bills like that good old moonshine. If the revenue boys should come put me away, then they'll give me a home for the rest of my days. The Charlie Monroe Tally Ho LP produced by Jackie Phelps. Lonesome Wind by Buzz Busby. Bashful brother Oswald's Black Smoke. Cost all of my money but a two dollar bill. Two dollar bill was a two dollar bill. Cost all of my money but a two dollar bill. I'm on my long journey home. In 1958, the Kingston Trio hit big on the pop charts with the traditional folk murder ballad, Tom Dooley. The arrangement, in contrast to the lyrics, is unintentionally hilarious. Well now, boy, hang down your head and cry. Hang down your head and cry. Hang down your head and cry. Oh boy, you're bound to die. Well now, boy, hang down your head and cry. 
Here's the earliest known recording of the song from three decades earlier. From the hillside to make her your wife. From the hillside where there you took her life. But the Kingston Trio single made millions of dollars, so naturally, a bunch of musicians launched pop folk acts, got record deals, and started cutting their own huge hits. Same as any other craze in the music business. Only this particular craze pulled from folk music, which naturally led a curious percentage of people to the source material. It's likely they first discovered the Kingston Trio's immediate predecessors, artists like Woody Guthrie, Pete Seeger and the Weavers, or the Clancy Brothers with Tommy Makem, before working their way further back to earlier recordings of the same songs, which nearly always sounded a hell of a lot more interesting than the pop folk versions on the radio. Musicians who caught this particular bug ended up creating little local scenes, pockets of folkies dedicated to getting as near as possible to the real thing, whatever they thought that meant. The most famous of these pockets is the Greenwich Village, New York City scene of the early 1960s, which gave us Bob Dylan. I will assume you've heard a little about it. What everyone alive at the time heard was a shitload of banjo at every level of this folk explosion, from the Kingston Trio, down to the village, down to college campuses and bus stations. It was banjos all the way down. This being an integral element of bluegrass quickly led to bluegrass music being swept up in the folk craze, shortly after Starday Records established itself as the de facto home of the genre. Don Pierce may not have had all of the major label hitmakers, Bill Monroe, Flatten Scruggs, Jimmy Martin, but he had damn near everyone else. Starday's bluegrass catalog, combined with Don's tried-and-true compilation LP strategy, started bringing in money hand over fist, right up until 1965, when the whole thing died on its feet. Don seems to have believed Starday's bluegrass sales dropped off due to the genre's association with all those folk pockets and their predominantly leftist politics. You know, dope-smoking pinkos showing up to Vietnam War protests playing songs on banjos just didn't sit right with country folk, so they stopped buying banjo music in response. This is essentially what Don wrote in a letter to Bluegrass Unlimited magazine in 1967, saying it's what he'd heard straight from Starday's mail-order clientele. In reality, leftist politics and protest songs were a very visible part of the folk scene from the beginning, long before it crossed over into pop culture. And while I'm sure that did bother many people, it isn't likely they were the same people responsible for bluegrass music's sudden launch into crossover pop sales figures. The much more likely explanation is Bob Dylan giveth and Bob Dylan taketh away. This is more or less what bluegrass expert Neil Rosenberg says happened to the genre in his 1985 book, Bluegrass, A History, 
where Rosenberg points to Dylan going electric at the Newport Folk Festival in 1965. After shocking his audience's sensibilities, Dylan then spent two years tugging them over to the electric side of the fence. Rosenberg was there, and he watched this all happen in real time. He also responded in real time to Don Pierce's letter in Bluegrass Unlimited. The magazine published Rosenberg's response, in which he suggests Starday would probably sell more albums if they prioritized releasing new material instead of constantly repackaging their most well-known titles until the endless compilation LPs became indistinguishable from one another, save for a shuffled track list and new cover art. Pierce didn't even bother denying it. He sent in another letter explaining the higher cost of sourcing, recording, distributing, and promoting new material. He explained Rosenberg's suggestion would require more of an investment and a much greater risk in an untested product than Starday's present business model. Unlike major labels, Dunn simply could not afford to bankroll all of the misses in between the hits. All true, but it didn't make Dylan any less electric, Rosenberg any less right, or Bluegrass any more profitable. Dunn's LP strategy had given Starday an angle in the country music market. To a fan of the genre, your first clean copy of a Starday compilation is a wonderful thing. So much so, you'll probably keep buying more of them until the day you get home with your fourth or fifth one and realize you already have all these songs on other Starday compilations. From then on, you're more careful about purchasing Starday compilations. About a year after this little exchange in the bluegrass press, Don Pierce started looking for a way out of the music business. And it wasn't because hippies invaded bluegrass or else Don could have simply gone back to country music especially since the number of radio stations in the United States dedicated to country music had grown from about 80 in the year 1961 to over 600 by 1970, the year Don retired. It's not like he stopped being good at his job right as the country music market became bigger than it ever was. If anything, Don Pierce was too good at his job. The rise of country radio stations can be largely attributed to efforts by the Country Music Association to educate the rest of the music industry on the topic of how much money adult fans of country music have. Don Pierce was a founding member of the CMA in 1958 and served on the board for years, all the while firing off motivational rants to industry trades. Here's how and why we should convince radio stations to launch country music programs. Here's how and why we should prioritize overseas distribution of country records, etc. In 1959, Billboard magazine named Don Pierce Country and Western Man of the Year. It's no exaggeration to say he played a starring role in making the genre too profitable for his independent label to survive. Starday may not have had the budget to risk promoting new material to so many radio stations, but the major labels could well afford the losses between the hits. Don's big money-making idea had always been to fill the gaps left open in the country market when the major labels pursued a pop or rock audience. Where they sold 45s, he sold LPs. Where their country artists went pop, his stayed hardcore. Where they dropped country artists, he picked them up. But in the mid-1960s, country music started making so much money, the major labels had enough to circle back and fill the gaps themselves. All they had to do was keep one Merle Haggard or Loretta Lynn for every five Patsy Kleins or Glenn Campbells, and a major label could make more money on both sides of the country music fence than Starday had ever seen. 
Sometime around 1962, Johnny Bond signed to Starday. Years later, Johnny told the Country Music Hall of Fame he made this choice because Don Pierce wanted to make a full album on him, not just a single or two. In 1965, Johnny had the biggest hit of his entire career with a re-recording of a novelty single he'd cut to little fanfare on Columbia over a decade earlier. A friend of mine gave me 10 little bottles of some special stuff that he had brewed up himself. So I took it and hid it down in my basement. But my wife found out about it and she told me to get rid of it or else. Since I didn't like the way she said or else, I went down there and proceeded to carry out her instructions. I set the ten little bottles on the drain board, picked up the first bottle, pulled the cork out of it and poured it down the sink. That is, all except one little swallow, which I drank. I picked up the next bottle and I pulled the cork out of it and I poured it down the sink. All except one little swallow, which I drank. I picked up the next bottle and I pulled the sink out of it and I poured it down the sink. All except one little swallow, which I drank. I picked up the next sink and I pulled the bottle out of it and I poured it down the court. All except one swallow, which I drank. The remake of Ten Little Bottles was recorded during the 1964 disc jockey convention in front of a live audience of a bunch of country music DJs when these DJs went home and this record souvenir of their party showed up in the mail, they played it so much it sold nearly a million units, stayed at number two country for a month, and nearly broke into the pop top 40. Please tell this story to anyone who doubts the impact of payola, airplay, and or chart placements on the history of music. But 10 Little Bottles was a gimmick with a corny product and even Don Pierce admitted he thought it was horrible. This was not a trick they could repeat often, if ever. And major labels were by this time pushing LPs just as hard as singles, shoving Don out of the territory he'd called his own for years. He simply could not compete. He tried everything, even the unthinkable. Following the British invasion, Starday began signing American pop acts dropped from major label deals. Like Guy Mitchell, who originally broke through on Columbia in 1950 with a couple top five pop hits. kept his career going long enough to hit number one in 1956 with a hokey version of Melvin Ensley's Singing the Blues just after Marty Robbins had the country hit. Well, I never felt more like crying all night Cause everything's wrong and 
nothing ain't right without you You got me singing the blues In 1959, Guy found another number one pop record by sucking the life out of Harlan Howard's Heartaches by the Number just after Ray Price had the country hit. Heartaches by the number, troubles by the score. Every day you love me less, each day I love you more. Yes, I've got heartaches by the number, a love that I can win. By 1967, Guy Mitchell couldn't get a hit if he ran out into the middle of the interstate, so Starday figured it'd be worth signing him and a bunch of other washed-up pop singers to see if they could make anything happen. Maybe having Guy record a ripoff of Roger Miller's Engine Engine Number no. 9 just a couple years after Roger had the hit seemed like a good idea. Traveling shoes, we're leaving this town. I'm picking them up and putting them down. Hidden where the wind blows wild and free Somewhere further down the line Where I might find peace of mind And the true love's waiting there for me But it didn't make anything happen And neither did re-recordings of his two number one hits from the previous decade the other legacy pop acts signed to Starday were similarly unsuccessful. In February of 1968, Glenn Campbell won four Grammy Awards, two in pop categories and two in country categories. So he was a pretty big deal when someone called Starday's office saying they had unreleased Glenn Campbell recordings they were willing to sell for $10,000. Don Bitt, paying 10 grand for what ended up being a bunch of demo recordings from a decade earlier. records of internal correspondence proving start a new Glenn Campbell would sue if they released these demos, but they did it anyway, figuring they'd sell enough copies to settle the lawsuit and still turn a profit. They were right. Campbell sued, yet Starday came out the other side of the settlement far ahead on the investment. Again, Don Pierce was great at his job and exploited every opportunity to its maximum potential. There simply stopped being opportunities to exploit. Gimmicks, flukes, unreleased demos from the early careers of now major stars, these were not replicable strategies a label could adopt as a business model. By the end of the 60s, Don knew he needed an exit. The one he found is way too complicated for this episode and better told whenever King Records has its day on this podcast. But the short version is Tommy Hill saw where all of this was headed and quit to take a job at MGM in 1968. The year Starday purchased King, another indie label, 
in order to sell both indie labels plus subsidiaries and song catalogs packaged together as Starday King. This sale was finalized in 1970 for a little over $5 million. Starday King managed to lose money for about a year and a half until the new owners decided to take the hit and sell at a loss, which is what the next buyer did two years after that until the whole thing eventually landed back in the hands of Tommy Hill. When his job at MGM didn't work out, Tommy launched Gusto Records in 1972, then sold ownership of Gusto so he could focus solely on producing sessions for the label. In 1975, Gusto bought Starday King for a mere $375,000. Over the years, Gusto similarly acquired many indie labels like Little Darlin', Chart, Music Corps, etc. Gusto does still exist as something of an aggregate for all these catalogs, working reissues, placements, and licensing deals. The labels purchased by Gusto usually cease to exist as standalone functional entities pretty soon after being acquired. One interesting thing about Starday, though, they released their biggest selling hit single ever after folding into Gusto, which means we get to talk about trucking songs. Back in 1959, a truck driver named Lonnie Irving started sending tapes into Starday's custom press service. Lonnie said his songs were about the people he met and things he saw while on the road. Hopefully, he was at least partly lying, because if he wasn't, then Pinball Machine is about a trucker he met who was so desperately addicted to gambling on bingo pins, his family couldn't afford food or heat, his children died, and his wife killed herself. I made my trip on to Chicago. I was gone two months cause I shot up my dough. When I got home, my family was gone. The best friend I had rung my telephone. He says, John, I guess you wonder about your babies and wife. Pneumonia got your babies and your wife took her life. I've lost all my friends. I can't sleep for bad dreams. I dream about an old truck and a pinball machine. You may recognize the melody as Rye Whiskey, Jack of Diamonds, or Way Up on Clinch Mountain, if you're familiar with Americanized versions of European folk songs with titles I cannot pronounce. As a result of nothing more than Lonnie Irving using the pre-assembled promo kits from Starday to mail his song to radio stations, Pinball Machine was an instant hit. The record landed at a very fitting number 13 on the country chart, and BMI gave Lonnie an award in 1960. This was not the first hit with a truckin' song, and we're not having that argument today, but it was the first one on Starday. So Don Pierce told his other artists to consider releasing similar material. In 1961, Starday released Jimmy Simpson's The Alcan Run. I got my rig in Bakersfield, hit old 99. Made my way up the hard highway into Dawson Creek on time. I've heard about the Alcan since I was a kid Always wanted to make the run and live to say I did In 1962, Tom O'Neill's recording of Sleeper Cab Blues came out on Starday. I got the Sleeper Cab Blues Driving on a big freight line I got them big wheels rolling Trucking right on down that line 
I got those big wheels rolling Just trucking all the time I get so doggone mixed up I don't even know the time Neither song was a hit. Then, in 1963, not on Star Day, Dave Dudley dropped Six Days on the Road. But nothing bothers me tonight I can dodge all the scales all right Six days on the road and I'm gonna make it home tonight Well, my rig's a little old, but that don't mean she's slow There's a flame from her stack and that smoke's a blowing black as coal Hometowns are coming in sight If you think I'm happy, you're right Six days on the road and I'm gonna make it home tonight It hit number two country, went pop top 40, and set the pace for trucking songs in the 1960s to make a slow climb towards semi-truck drivers finding themselves at the direct center of American pop culture in the following decade. For whatever reason, storytellers decided truckers were the ideal protagonists for their working-class fantasies, and Starday was once more in a position to capitalize on the foresight of Don Pierce. A month after Dave Dudley released Six Days on the Road, Bobby Sykes was in Starday Studios cutting Diesel Smoke, Dangerous Curves. Diesel Smoke, Dangerous Curves I'm driving a truck on a mountain road, I got a hot rod rig and I'm flying low. My eyes are filled with diesel smoke and these hairpin curves, they ain't no joke. Diesel Smoke, Dangerous Curves a song originally done by Doy Odell in 1952. Out last night drinking beer with the guys, got an aching head and bloodshot eyes. Ended up with a pretty little dame. I didn't even know her name. Diesel Smoke and Dangerous Curve. Followed by Sons of the Pioneers. I deliver this hot shot freight, I gotta get to going cause I'm running late. This mountain grade is mighty steep, can't stay awake, ain't had no sleep. Diesel smoke. Dangerous girl. Then a pop version by Burl Ives. Gee, I guess I closed my eyes a while. Here I am, a running wild. I burn my brakes and strip my gears. Have to ride her down a field. Diesel smoke. Dangerous Nobody touched it again until Don Pierce needed songs for a trucking compilation in the wake of Dave Dudley. Diesel Smoke, Dangerous Curves wound up being the title track of this first trucker comp. Following Starday's playbook, the album cover had a full-frame color photo of a leggy truck stop waitress whose next customer could be seen through the window climbing down off a big rig in the parking lot. It sold about 10,000 copies a year for at least the first five years it was out. Small potatoes compared to major label numbers, but enough to put Starday in the business of trucking songs for quite some time. In 1964, the Willis Brothers had a top 10 hit with Give Me 40 Acres to Turn This Rig Around. He was heading into Boston in a big long diesel truck. It was his first trip to Boston, he was having lots of luck. He was going the wrong direction down a one-way street in town. And this is what he said when the police chased him down. Give me 40 acres and I'll turn this rig around It's the easiest way that I've found Some guys can turn it on 
on a dime or turn it right downtown But I need 40 acres to turn this rig around Sarday threw it on the hit pile for future compilations, scheduled more pretty lady photo shoots, and kept right on trucking. In this particular subgenre, the label's experience with flashy album covers gave them a pretty huge advantage and high curb appeal. As for the music itself, Don Pierce had long ago given Tommy Hill his most important instructions for producing a Sarday session. Quote, I want to hear the melody. I don't want no hot licks in there. End quote. To Don, Starday's product was the singer and the song they were singing. No session musician, no matter how good they were, ever needed to put their instrument in the way of a song. As such, records cut in Starday's studio tend to feature a clear vocal all the way at the front of the mix, which makes the singer easier to hear in noisy environments, like a crowded bar or the cab of a truck running a diesel engine. In 1965, Webb Pierce's old duet partner Red Sovine released his first number one as a solo artist, Giddy Up Go, a sappy recitation about a long-lost father and son who reconnect when they run into each other as truck drivers on the road. Well, I remember the first truck I drove. I was so proud I could hardly wait to get home to show my wife and little boy. And my little boy was so excited like when he saw his first snow. He wasn't old enough to say too many words. He just kept a hollering, Giddy Up Go, Daddy, Giddy Up Go. Giddy Up Go being the final record Starday put at number one while Don Pierce ran the show, it's fair to assume this is around the time he started wondering if the best he could do was no longer good enough to stay in the business. Red Sovine's next major hit with a truck and recitation was Phantom 309, a story even more far-fetched than Giddy Up Go. This time, the narrator is a hitchhiker who gets picked up by a ghost truck driver in a ghost semi-truck or something to that effect. Well, I asked him why he called his rig such a name. He said, son, this old Mac can put them all to shame. There ain't a driver or a rig a running any line that's seen nothing but taillights from Phantom 309. By the time Phantom 309 went top 10 in late 1967, Don had decided to get out of the business. After the sale and all the resales of the label, after it ended up back with Tommy Hill and Gusto, it was Red Sovine who released Starday's final number one country record. Sandwiched between C.W. McCall's late 1975 number one pop hit Convoy and the commercial peak of truck and culture in 1977 with Smokey and the Bandit, Red Sovine took a truck driver recitation all the way to Top 40 Radio. For anyone who's ever actually listened to CB Radio for longer than 30 minutes, Teddy Bear is one of the most implausible stories of all time. But CB was still fairly new in 1976, so Red and his co-writers were able to get away with this emotionally manipulative yarn about a disabled boy with a dead dad getting on his CB radio to have a bunch of truck drivers abandon their routes and line up on his street to take turns giving the boy truck rides before leaving his mom with a bunch of money. This was my dad's radio, the little boy said. But I guess it's mine and mom's now. Because my daddy's dead. Gusto threw it on the hit pile for their next compilation. Thank you for listening to Cocaine and Rhinestones. Every episode is written and produced entirely by me, Tyler Mayhanko. 
Last season, I asked everyone to share each episode with only one person, and I asked you to prioritize doing that in person rather than simply posting about the podcast on social media. Well, obviously, the world is radically different this time around, so I'm now going to ask the opposite of you. If you enjoyed this episode, please do talk about it on social media, message boards, chat rooms, videos, TikTok, wherever you're interacting with people through your phone or online. If it doesn't break any rules, you can post a link to this episode's companion blog post on cocaineandrhinestones.com, where anyone who can't or doesn't want to listen to a podcast can read a transcript of the episode. Each post also contains information on my sources, some relevant pictures, sometimes video, and always a complete list of all song excerpts in the episode, along with links to purchase the full songs if they are available online. While you're on the website, be sure to check out whatever official podcast merch is currently available in the store. And yes, there is official podcast merch. If you're listening soon after the release of this episode, there should be several shirt designs and all kinds of other good stuff. Alternately, you can support the podcast by signing up for the Patreon to gain access to ad-free versions of every episode as well as the entire archive of behind-the-scenes work journals I've posted every month since the end of the first season. Aside from the general state of the world, there are several major differences between Season 1 and Season 2 of this podcast. I'm not going to talk about all of them today because there are a lot of things I want people to find out by listening, But one thing that's different is the average length of each episode in Season 2 is significantly longer than the average length of episodes in Season 1. In order to make sure as many people as possible have time to listen to each episode in full before the next one is released, and in order to give myself the additional time needed to create these longer episodes, there will be a two-week gap between releases instead of the one-week gap of Season 1. I know there are people who won't be happy about this, but I don't care. This decision was made to prioritize launching the season as early as possible. It was either put a two-week gap in the release schedule or delay the beginning of the season by however many more months it would have taken for me to make the entire thing ahead of time. Again, I'm certain some listeners would rather I had done that, just like I'm certain some listeners would rather the whole season be released at once Netflix-style, But that is not what's going to happen, because this is what's going to happen. Anyone having a really hard time waiting on the next episode, I can wholeheartedly recommend re-listening to whatever episodes have been released, as doing so will only improve your enjoyment of those episodes, the next episode to come out, and the season as a whole. When the podcast does return in two weeks, I will be talking about Owen Bradley. This is a name that means many different things to many different people, It's also a name that means a lot to some people and very little to others. Most of you who recognize the name Owen Bradley have seen it on the records he produced for artists like Patsy Cline, Loretta Lynn, Brenda Lee, and Conway Twitty. What we'll look at in the next episode is how, when, and why his work came to be incredibly misunderstood and Owen Bradley came to be regarded as a villain by many fans of country music. This is a pretty big can of worms to crack open, and I'm excited about doing it. Alright, let's get into the liner notes. The pinball machine sounds in the beginning were from Joker Poker, one of my favorite classic tables. The clip of the mobsters intimidating a soda shop owner about installing some pin games was from an old movie called Bullets or Ballots. 
And of course, that clip of Fiorello LaGuardia was just some speech that he gave in which he happened to use the word machine, and I thought that'd be cool to use. I did read a book called Pinball Wizard by Adam Rubin, and some of the info came from there, but that book is not really anything like what I did with this intro. There's a little history, but it's mostly about how the author gets addicted to pinball and gets into competitive play. Really, I didn't need much of a source for this intro because I've been playing pinball my whole life. For all the reasons mentioned, it seems like there were always machines around in the kind of places where I grew up. So a lot of my awareness of the history of pinball just comes from a lifetime of talking to other people who play it. And I did all my usual fact-checking before I said any of those things using many sources readily available to anyone who runs a quick internet search. It didn't really make sense to use a clip of it, but if it's been bothering anyone trying to figure out where they've heard Lonnie Irving's pinball machine before, there's a chance you heard a recording of The Fall covering it live, as Mark E. Smith was a big fan. Red Sovine's teddy bear is so objectively terrible that I didn't want to end an episode full of mostly great music by bumming everyone out, but if the way I talk about teddy bear seems excessively harsh in the context of the clip you heard, go ahead and listen to the whole song to have your day ruined. On the topic of sound-alikes, another way labels tried to confuse fans from being able to identify who they were hearing was by using the same pseudonym for multiple singers. So George Jones had sound-alikes issued under the names Hank Smith and Thumper Jones, but so did Leon Payne. There's one side of a Dixie EP that has George Jones doing Heartbreak Hotel and Leon Payne doing Folsom Prison Blues, both credited to Thumper Jones, along with the, quote, original hit recording of Seasons of My Heart, credited to George Jones. Oh, and that sound-alike of the Leuven Brothers hit with Running Wild was, of course, sung by an uncredited George Jones and some other unknown vocalist. The song Why Baby Why was also recorded by Hank Lachlan in 1956, and he also had a top 10 hit with it. Then almost 30 years later, Charlie Pride took it to number one again, so I'd say that's a pretty great country song. I couldn't find out enough about what happened to bring this up in the main episode, but Bill Starnes, Jack's son who engineered Stardate's recording sessions when he was just a teenager, apparently robbed a bank in late 1956, and this somehow led to his mother Neva being arrested. If anyone out there knows anything more about this, I would definitely appreciate any information because nothing about it really makes much sense to me and I'd love to know what really happened there. Music publishing is a pretty confusing thing to a lot of people, so I wanted to specify that Don Pierce walked away from the Stardate split with 50% of the publisher's share of George Jones' compositions. It was only after listening that I realized some people could misunderstand what I said to mean Don took money that would have otherwise gone to George Jones, which was not the case. And the reason I could see some people hearing it that way is Don Pierce is another one of those music industry guys who has a reputation for being pretty ruthless in his business dealings. There's a story about Frankie Miller's Blackland Farmer being signed over to Don Pierce in a way some people feel is unethical. I have not looked into Frankie Miller as deeply as others, specifically Jimmy McDonough, 
But I have seen Frankie Miller allude to whatever deal he made with Don Pierce, and Frankie himself doesn't seem to believe he was taken advantage of. Don Pierce was absolutely a business-minded, budget-conscious hustler, but I do feel it's important to draw a distinction between characters like him and characters like his old boss, Bill McCall, at Four Star. Looking back on this industry, there will always be outdated practices and philosophies which seem predatory from a modern perspective, but were accepted at the time. That's different from people engaging in behavior that was viewed as unethical even at the time they were doing it. Most of the stories people tell about getting mad at Bill McCall end with them staying mad at Bill McCall. Most stories people tell about getting mad at Don Pierce end with them not being mad at him anymore, either because Don made it right or because at the end of the day, you just had to accept and laugh about where his priorities were. There's a pretty great story in a 1965 issue of the Tennessean newspaper where an unnamed musician says Don Pierce invited a bunch of industry people out to a lake in the Nashville area for a barbecue. Everyone gets out there, the grill's going, people are drinking beer. Someone eventually says something to Don about how nice it is to be out there by the lake. And Don mentions they just so happen to be hanging out near some lots of land he owns and is trying to sell. So if they'd like to have a reason to come out to the lake more often, then maybe they should talk business. <laughs> That's just Don Pierce. Okay, season two uses information from the same group of reference books I've collected on the library page of the Cocaine and Rhinestones website in order to not have to talk about the same 15 or so books in every episode's liner notes. However, there is also going to be a separate season two library page on the website for the same reason. Those of you who want to avoid spoilers for the entire season should probably steer clear of that season two library page until you've heard another four or five episodes. But I will be discussing my sources from that page as they become relevant in the liner notes of each episode. Naturally, one of my main sources for this episode was a book I mentioned last season titled The Star Day Story, The House That Country Music Built by Nathan D. Gibson. My opinion of this book has not changed. It is still a phenomenal resource. As much information was in this episode, there's still so much more in that book for anyone interested in the history of Starday. This label existed for decades. There are Starday artists and many stories I didn't even mention. For example, a guy named Peck Touchton had his only song released on Starday accidentally placed on the mislabeled B-side of a George Jones single. Apparently, Jack Starnes tried to warn Don Pierce about the mistake in a letter, but due to some kind of car accident, the letter didn't make it to Don in time. There are dozens more little pieces like this in Nathan's book. If you liked a lot of the clips in this episode, there were quite a few more songs on the list of things I thought I may possibly use. And Nathan's book is really one of those where you're going to want to take it, sit down on YouTube, and just listen to all the songs that he mentions. You're probably going to find something you haven't heard before that you really, really like. The other primary source for this episode is the Bear Family box set of George Jones' complete Star Day and Mercury recordings. George Jones is the biggest artist who was associated with Star Day for the longest period of time. So a lot of people who write about his Starday years will often throw in little tidbits of info that become relevant to other artists or other musicians who were involved. And there are a lot of times where that stuff completes pieces of a puzzle I've been trying to put together. 
Bear Family box sets usually come with pretty informative booklets, but this one comes with an actual hardcover book by Kevin Coffey. And this book was a truly great resource. Even just the data on George Jones' recording sessions in the back of the book was something I went back to dozens of times to make sure about the dates things happened and which people were involved. But there were also many little facts about other artists which plugged right into other threads I wanted to follow. Kevin's book in that box set definitely made it easier to put this episode together. As mentioned, Neil Rosenberg's book, Bluegrass, A History, was one of my main sources for the Bluegrass segment and is the definitive work on the genre. If you enjoyed the clips during that segment or the stories about Bluegrass becoming a huge fad, that book is highly recommended reading material. As always, there is so much more to the story, and Neil's book will continue to be a source frequently used on this podcast. Lastly, one of the reasons season two took longer than I expected and became larger than I expected is because I was invited to research in the Country Music Hall of Fame and Museums archives. This is not a thing I knew existed when I made season one of the show. The volume and quality of information available in those archives is far beyond anything I could have expected. However many hours I spent in there taking notes as quickly as I could before closing time, it took probably 10 times as many hours at home to unpack those notes, research the additional avenues they opened up, and plug everything into the stories I'm trying to tell. As such, there's really no way for me to distinguish between information which should and shouldn't be attributed to the time I spent in those archives. While this podcast is not officially associated or partnered with the Country Music Hall of Fame and Museum, it's only right for me to mention them as a source for every episode going forward. If you've never been to the museum, please do visit them when you come to Nashville. If you are a writer or a researcher, I cannot stress how important it is for you to use those archives. Okay, that's it. Get ready for Owen Bradley because telling his story requires upending a huge portion of the written history on the entire genre of country music. Long story short, I'm about to start a whole lot of arguments everyone should have had quite some time ago. Do not ask me, love, to linger, for you know not what you say. When my beauty calls, my sweetheart's voice is vain. But your heart need not be sighing, if I'm not among the dying, I'll be with you when the roses bloom again. When the roses bloom again beside the river And the robin redbreast sings his sweet refrain As in days of all anxiety I'll be with you, sweetheart mine I'll be with you when the roses bloom again